0: For millions of people, the end of World War II brought not peace but dislocation. People of German ancestry were expelled from Eastern and Central European countries. Muslims left India for the new nation of Pakistan. Hindus and Sikhs ran in the other direction. The fledgling state of Israel fought a war of independence against its neighbors. As many as 800,000 Arabs left what became Israel. A similar number of Jews soon were expelled from Muslim-majority countries. All the refugees from the post-war period have by now been settled, with one exception, Palestinian refugees. The U.N. Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, which is responsible only for this one group, counts all the descendants of refugees as refugees, even if they live in the West Bank or Gaza, even if they are citizens of Jordan or another country. For this and other reasons, the Trump administration sees UNRWA as an impediment to the peace process it hopes to revive and renew. To help you and me understand this evolving situation, I'm joined by FDD Senior Vice President Jonathan Schanzer and FDD Senior Advisor Richard Goldberg. This is Foreign Policy. Either the US enforces some rules in the world or there are no- Every
1: US president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're
2: still killing guys who joined the jihad
1: in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the game. We are
0: seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last
1: decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do.
0: There are something like 60 million, more than that, refugees, displaced persons, asylum seekers in the world today. Certain groups within that, certain subgroups, we're paying more attention to, the media pay more attention to than others. Uh, not least among them, right now, what are called Palestinian refugees. Um, I'm not sure everybody knows where these Palestinian refugees came from, how this came about. Maybe John, why don't you why don't you start and talk a little bit about the history uh, that, that created Palestinian refugees to begin with? Uh, what we now call Palestinian refugees—that's not what they were called initially.
1: No, uh, these were uh, Arabs uh, who were living in the Mandate of Palestine uh, prior to the 1948 and 49, uh, what's known as the War of Independence uh, from the Israeli side, or the Nakba, the uh, catastrophe, as it's uh, uh, described by the Palestinians. During that war, there were roughly 800,000 Arabs who were either urged to flee by other Arab states or forced out by by the Israelis during the course of the war. Uh, And there have been, I would say, a handful of other refugees that may have uh, stemmed from the 1967 war, but it was really primarily that 48-49 war that produced roughly 800,000 refugees. Now, that number is interesting because we also saw that same number, give or take, uh, of Jews being expelled from Arab states during that time. What's notable is that the Jewish refugees from Arab states have all integrated into Israel. They are citizens of Israel. They don't claim refugee status. Uh, But what we have now is a situation where not just the people who were refugees from uh, the Palestinian side claiming that status, but now also their descendants.
0: So we've gone from a a number of roughly 800,000 to a much larger number because of this definition of descendants. And the number now is rich about?
2: Well, they'll claim, you know, up to 6 million. I mean, this is something that is unprecedented in the history of refugees. Typically when the United States thinks about a refugee policy, when the world thinks about a refugee policy, we put people first and politics last. There's there's no politics in trying to help protect and resettle refugees, but that's not the case from the beginning of the uh, organization set up for Palestinian refugees. This was a political weapon in an ongoing war to continue a war that was lost in 1948-1949 by the Arab states with the hope that one day they could use this political weapon in finally conquering the state of Israel and wiping it out.
0: But but millions of refugees, probably about 17 million if memory serves, um, they are addressed by a particular UN organization, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. That's the principal entity responsible for refugees around the world, with one singular exception, and that is Palestinian refugees. Maybe, Rich, go on to talk about why the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, that office is not responsible for Palestinian refugees, why a whole other entity was created and what that entity is that is responsible for Palestinian
2: refugees. Well, that's exactly right, and and so John's storyline, if you understand that right after the 49 conflict and the Arab states realize they've lost this big battle to wipe out this new state of Israel, what are they gonna do with the refugees rather than integrate them, rather than allow the international community to help them resettle. Let's establish a new independent agency called the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, and that will be just for these Palestinian refugees. And We're going to keep them in camps. We're going to continue as they have children and grandchildren and great grandchildren to register them as refugees and keep this sort of false myth narrative alive that one day they're all going to come back to modern-day Israel, resettle in their homes, and wipe out the Jewish majority in the state of Israel. So all these years later, while we have one agency, UNHCR, as you mentioned, serving seventeen million roughly refugees currently in in today's uh, system, in camps all over the world, working ultimately to try to resettle and move these people to post-refugee status, as it's called. You have one other organization that serves about a third of that number, so you know five to six million compared to the $17 at UNHCR, yet they have three times the staff, 30,000 people working for UNRWA, compared to about 11,000 for UNHCR. The dollar per refugee, the dollar per administrative staff spend from the U.S. taxpayer, from the international community for UNRWA, is, is pretty ludicrous when you think about it from an investor perspective. So you have this crazy idea that we have an independent agency just for Palestinian refugees, you're playing politics with people's lives for generations. And it's a terrible deal for the U.S. taxpayer. It just doesn't make sense on its face.
0: In terms of anomalies, is also this. If I'm a refugee from oh, from Burma and I get citizenship in another country, I'm no longer a refugee. If I go back to Burma, I'm no longer a refugee. But you can be a Palestinian refugee and hold citizenship in Jordan you can be a Palestinian refugee and be in the West Bank, which is Palestinian territory. We all talk about it that way. That also is unique, isn't it, John?
1: It is. Uh, I don't think there's anything like it anywhere in the world. Uh, But I think even to make matters worse, to take a look at where some of these refugees have settled elsewhere in the arab world they are uh, encouraged in fact in some cases forced to be living symbols of the palestinian cause so for example you go to lebanon and you will find that the palestinian refugee population there is not allowed to gain uh, employment uh, of certain types they are forced to uh, remain in camps they are not given the the rights. Uh, of Lebanese citizenship. In other words, they are encouraged to remain stateless and to be uh, effectively a dagger in the back of the Israelis, because as we we know, the larger this this refugee population grows, the more difficult it becomes for Israel to try to solve the problem. Meanwhile, Palestinian leadership continues to call for what they call the right of return.
0: Well, We'll get to that in a second. If you go to a, I'm sure you've been to a refugee camp in the West Bank, what does it look like?
1: They they differ. In some cases, you'll see squalor. In some cases, you'll see kind of lower middle class housing. Uh, but they are ghettos. Um, you know, they are they are designed to be. Uh, a cluster of uh, family homes of people that are descendants of the refugees. What's amazing is that some of them uh, don't actually even include the refugees themselves. These are people that have died out over time, but you have the families perpetuating this, uh, continuing to call themselves refugees, again, as living symbols.
0: As living symbols, and we've said as pawns, and you mentioned the concept of the right of return. Explain how the right of return so-called how that is being used as a weapon against Israel and an impediment, I would argue, I think you'd agree, to any sort of realistic peace process.
1: Right. So, I mean, when one looks at the bilateral negotiations that have been taking place between the Palestinians and Israelis, the Palestinians uh, typically like to talk about a number of issues that are core issues for them. Uh, Jerusalem being one of them. That's been in the news, as we know, lately. Borders is, is another. Uh, settlements is another issue. And then refugees I- is another one. And that has been a very difficult sticking point over the years because what the Palestinians say is that all of this population, this five to six million uh, that we've been talking about, that they all must settle in historic Palestine. Now, this is basically a call for the demographic destruction of, of the state of israel there's only about 8.2 million uh people living in israel right now roughly a million and a half of them are arab israelis and so you add this five six million population in there And it's unsustainable. Israel loses its Jewish character. Jews uh, become
0: a minority within the state of Israel.
1: That's right. And so the next election, obviously, Israel prides itself on being a democracy. The next election obviously doesn't work out in the way that previous elections have. Uh, You could have a takeover by Arab parties and change the very character of the state. And of
0: course, one of the reasons that would be scary to Israelis is you have 22 Arab states. You have 56 Muslim majority states, minorities in I would say none of those countries have equal rights. The various administrations preceding this one, uh, Bush administration, Clinton administration, Obama administration, did they all have similar policies and attitudes in terms of Palestinian refugees and UNRWA and how it was uh, taking responsibility for the refugees?
2: In general, yes. I mean, you look at U.S. policy towards UNRWA going back to 1950 when it was set up. The U.S. government, the U.S. taxpayer, has contributed $6 billion over that amount of time to UNRWA. In the last four years alone, full fiscal years, going back into the Obama administration, it really ratcheted up to a billion dollars just in that four-year period. So we've really seen this ramp up in the spend going on. A lot of it due to the conflict in Syria and and some of the emergency assistance, but a lot of it just due to, to UNRWA's basic inefficiency and lack of accountability. But whether it was the Bush administration, the Obama administration, even up until now in the Trump administration, there has been this institutional protection inside the State Department to this agency one bureau inside the state department they call it prm population refugee migration bureau it's in charge of our contributions from the united states to unhcr and to unra and these are people who are, who genuinely care about refugees they're they're civil servants mainly they're working uh, just to find out are, are we taking care of refugees they judge themselves by how much more money can we get every year to send to a refugee agency and they protect UNRWA with their dear lives. And this has gone on across administrations. And there's no real voice for the U.S. taxpayer here. You, you think about the, back mm-hmm. in the day of, you look around the State Department and all these different flags, and all the different desks. Where's the taxpayer's desk? Where's the America desk at the State Department? This is a moment where the Trump administration has an opportunity to finally raise their hand and say, You know, John Q. Taxpayer wants to know, what are we getting for our money here? Why have we been forking over billions of dollars to a refugee problem that happened decades ago where people could be reintegrated and in some cases have already been reintegrated into societies? Why does this still exist? Why aren't we just lifting the myth? In some ways, you know, there have been all these third rails in Middle East politics for so many years. When the president decided to recognize Jerusalem as the capital, he touched one of those third rails. And for so long across Republican and Democratic administrations, people inside the State Department believed the Middle East would explode if we recognized Jerusalem. It didn't.
0: One would think that Congress, which allocates the money to pay these bills, would want to know from the State Department, from UNRWA, OK, how many of these refugees are really refugees? What's the exact number and how many are the descendants? I mean, that's the kind of thing, as a matter of transparency, as a matter of knowing who you're paying for what, I would think that Congress would want to know.
2: Have they? There, there are three basic kind of questions that have been asked by Congress, bipartisan questions, mandates, in fact, in appropriations bills. That have been ignored by administration after administration, going back over a decade. Number one, can we see the books? Can we get an independent audit? Can we get one of our Big Four to come in and really take a look at what you're spending your money on? What UNRWA is spending its what money, us spending, spending our exactly. money. Exactly. There's a program that UNRWA runs called Cash Assistance, literally handing out bags of money to people without knowing who they are, where the money's going. And we, the U.S. taxpayer, have no right, they say, to have an independent audit of that program. Never been done. And to this day, still hasn't been done. Number two, to your point, how many people are there that are actually refugees that are being served by UNRWA? And how many others are just descendants? Now, they might be poor and they may need assistance to reach self-sufficiency. And we do that in other countries via bilateral assistance across the world. But that's very different than a refugee. Congress mandated that the State Department tell us how many people there are, how many refugees, how many descendants. That report came back a couple years ago to Congress from the Obama administration, classified.
0: Classified, secret, top secret. You and I can't know this information.
2: Taxpayer accountability is a classified matter at the State Department.
0: It would expose uh, sources and methods of uh, the intelligence community. It's a very strange thing to classify simply who, you, who is getting taxpayer money. That's what you're not allowing people to know. Somebody is obviously afraid that such information could produce some volatility somewhere. But we have a guess probably. I'm sure you have a guess how many it probably amounts to. Any A real refugee would have to be, simple arithmetic, 60 years old at a minimum.
1: Right. And, and so there was a, a fascinating uh, sort of research campaign conducted by a, an Israeli member of Knesset a few years ago, a woman by the name of Anat Wilf. She uh, went and looked back that, of course, mathematically, you can't have uh, a refugee population grow over time from 800,000 to 5 million, that that's just not something biologically possible. And so uh, she went back and she looked and the estimate that she came up with. And, of course, we can't confirm this. But the estimate was that there would be 30 or 40,000 surviving refugees from that original population from 1948. Now, what's amazing about that number is that that is roughly equal to the total number of people working for UNRWA right now. So you have one employee for every surviving refugee from that original 48-49 war. Sounds like a cruise ship uh, (laughs) (laughs) ratio. (laughs) Is UNRWA, the work it does,
0: different substantially in the West Bank and uh, and Gaza? Gaza, obviously – maybe not obviously, being ruled by Hamas, which is a designated terrorist organization that openly advocates the extermination of Israel, does not involve itself in any kind of peace processes. Uh, And the West Bank, more or less governed by the Palestinian Authority, which not lately, but from time to time does negotiate and involve itself in peace processes and says it favors a two-state solution. How different is UNRWA and Gaza from West Bank?
2: UNRWA is different in every place you look that UNRWA operates, and that's that's really the truth. And you have to, unfortunately, because of the geopolitics, because of security situations, because of what goes on, whether you're in Syria or Lebanon or the West Bank or Jordan or Gaza, everything is going to be unique here. It's not it's not monolithic as it, as it once was. In the West Bank, you have a Palestinian Authority that is supposed to be providing basic services to its people. It runs schools, it runs hospitals, it runs sewer systems, all this sort of stuff. And then UNRWA does the same thing in parallel in the same space. Now, Presumably, the people who are receiving UNRWA services living in the West Bank are going to be citizens. If there's ever a Palestinian state, they will be citizens of that state. Yet, we're not allowed to talk about or prepare for a transition of those services to the West Bank government. In Jordan, as you alluded to earlier, 2 million people treated as citizens. Uh, What's the nature of keeping UNRWA services there? A big question mark that has to do with the domestic politics and the uh, issues facing the kingdom and the king and the royal family. In Gaza, you're correct. UNRWA is basically the way that the United States and the international community can provide assistance outside of direct contributions to a foreign terrorist organization. That's what makes that so difficult. But then, you know, as John alluded to earlier, you have a different situation in Syria and in Lebanon, and especially in the wake of the Syrian civil war and, and the catastrophes there, there's a lot to be said that, especially in those two areas, the model of keeping Palestinian refugees with UNRWA No longer really makes any sense. UNHCR could be doing a much better job in those areas.
0: It's pretty hard for UNRWA to do any work in the midst of the bloodshed in Syria.
1: Yeah, I mean that's right. And and actually, one of the things that uh, that we have seen is that Palestinians fleeing Syria. Uh, have not been able to get the services that they would uh, like to receive. And and that is primarily because UNHCR is working in Turkey and they are not allowed to treat the Palestinian refugees. UNRWA, that is their job to do that. And they're not located everywhere where Palestinian refugees may be. And so you get a sense of how damaging it can be. For, uh, for this dichotomy and for UNRWA to own this issue that really UNRWA should be under the umbrella or really subsumed uh, by the HCR. And so, I mean, I think a, a debate has started, maybe not because of Syria, I think primarily because of the work of Ambassador Nikki Haley uh, at Turtle Bay, but there is now a discussion of perhaps folding it in and, and having UNRWA close up shop. But I would add this, that uh, historically, The uh, one country that has been most opposed to shutting UNRWA's doors has ironically been Israel that the Israelis have historically been concerned that once UNRWA stops providing these services to the West Bank or to the Gaza Strip, that they will be the ones stuck with having to Mm. provide that assistance. And what they want to see is something that takes the politics out of it. They don't have a problem with the idea of the United Nations providing support to destitute Palestinians. Uh, people in need should get whatever services are required. It's the politics of all of this, the right of return, some of these issues that we discussed earlier. This is what the Israelis can't stomach and I think ultimately why they've come around to the idea that UNRWA must go. But uh,
0: Right, because UNRWA is very loath to say, OK, we've got 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 actual refugees – we have another few million people that we're taking care of. We want to continue to. But let's be honest about it. And we're going to tell you that we can do a better job than anybody else. And so we're going to ask for the international donor community, so-called United States and the leadership of that, uh, to continue to support us. They don't, w- they don't want to have to make that argument.
1: No, they don't. I mean, I think, you know, they look at uh, the Palestinian population as clients. Right? And they, they can continue to grow their organization and, and prosper uh, as a result of it. Of course, that runs counter to everything that the United Nations was set up to do, which was really to solve these refugee populations and to end conflict. This organization has been perpetuating conflict, and that's, that's really the shame of it all.
0: And one more question along these lines. I, I suppose that the most politicized faction of UNRWA would be in Gaza. How politicized has it gotten?
1: Well, look, it, first of all, it's, it's highly politicized. It's an organization that clearly is working with Hamas it, just to do Hire any,
0: Hamas people for as employees?
1: That's right. We have seen actually uh, UNRWA teachers uh, as Hamas members. But I think even more worryingly, we saw during the 2014 rocket war, that 51-day war uh, that took its toll on both sides, the Israelis as well as the Gaza population, we saw that some of the so-called terror tunnels opened up uh, either next to or even under UNRWA facilities. So in other words, one gets a sense that UNRWA uh, is not just sort of uh, tolerating Hamas in order to be able to provide services in the Gaza Strip, but they're actually working with Hamas, colluding with Hamas, if you will.
0: So the current administration, it's been reported, has cut funds to UNRWA. I I think probably the proper uh, way to describe it is they've delayed funds. Is that not right, Rich?
2: Yeah. The withholding uh, a delay, I think you could also say that instead of past practice of just handing over one check at the beginning of the year, which ultimately towards the end of the fiscal year, UNRWA comes back and says, hey, we burned through the cash, give us more. And they call it an emergency appeal. Uh, a U.S. taxpayer would just call it uh, asking for more money uh, and wasting whatever we just gave you. I think now you could say that from a taxpayer accountability perspective, we're gonna start delivering our aid in tranches. You know, Here's some, we wanna see some accountability, we wanna see some changes, we wanna see some reforms. Here's some more. And every time you deliver another tranche, you as the taxpayer, as the investor, uh, as you know, the, the the number one donor in the world to this organization, say, I want to see what I'm getting for my money.
0: And is it your sense that that's that's where the Trump administration is, that's what it's going to do, it's going to insist on reform in exchange for the funds um, that UNRWA has, has normally been getting from the U.S., and if the reform is enacted, it'll get the funds. If not, funds will be withheld. Is that the policy, and is that the extent of the policy of the Trump administration, or do you think they're contemplating more?
1: Look, I think it's unclear whether they're going to hand it out or not. I do think that Rich is right that they don't want to – uh, get into that emergency situation at the end of the year by by October, you know, being asked for another couple hundred million dollars, which is, you know, that's not how charity should work. And uh, the Trump administration views UNRWA rightly as a charity, not an obligation, but not a, but an a entitlement. That's right. So I, I think that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, you know, in terms of reform, I think we need to be modest about this. But there is talk about uh, changing up the leadership, uh, the board of advisors who's involved In other words, if we're the number one donor, that perhaps we should have more oversight and it's unclear why the United States hasn't been getting that oversight in recent years. There is talk of folding it into the UNHCR, which we've discussed, and I think that would be a smart move. Uh, There's also been ideas that have been kicked around about starting some sort of a fund with the money that we would normally provide to UNRWA to make sure that destitute Palestinians get the support or even people that identify as refugees. That aren't they aren't treat. they wouldn't be treated as refugees moving forward, but they could get some sort of a fund as restitution. In other words, there's lots of creative ways that the United States can approach this. We just haven't seen them up until now, and it actually looks like the Trump administration is weighing some some alternatives. Go ahead, Rich.
2: And and I'll say from my perspective, there's two standing requirements from Congress that have never been fulfilled. They were ignored by the Obama administration. And to me, it's going to be a true test of the Trump administration. Mm to see what they do. Number one, this report of the basic information on how many refugees there are is still classified. This is not the Obama State Department anymore. This is the Trump State Department. The president can order this to happen. Mm. One little bureau that handles refugees in the State Department should not be the arbiter of what is in the national security interest of the United States.
0: President Trump could simply do it. He could simply say and Congress could urge him to do it.
2: Absolutely. On a bipartisan basis, preferably. And then we could have an honest debate about who are we funding and what is the best way to ensure that those people get the services they need. The second is what's the future of this organization? What is the work plan? What is the technical work plan to actually be able to move these services to someone else, whether it's another agency or if you're in the West Bank or if you're in Jordan, to the government that already exists there? Uh, the Congress did pass a law asking the State Department and GAO to report back with a technical work plan just for the West Bank, because that one makes the most sense. If we're going to have a Palestinian state, the West Bank is going to be part of the Palestinian state. Show us how you plan to move and transition services that are currently provided by UNRWA in the West Bank to the Palestinian Authority. Technically, what's going to be needed? Computer systems, all money. Uh, schools, construction, what what do you need to do? Let's put the plan on paper. If the Palestinians and UNRWA refuse to do that, if the State Department refuses to do that, then how serious is anybody about actually building institutions for a Palestinian state? And that's a question then to the Palestinian leadership.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, what I would just note here is that um, the uh, decision to look at reform within UNRWA, the challenges that we have long observed within UNRWA are not new. Uh, in fact, Canada in in the year 2010, uh, made a significant cut to their funding of UNRWA. They've actually, I mean, that was during the Harper government. Mm. They've reinstated it under Trudeau. Uh, But the point here is that uh, this has been a concern for quite a while, that the refugee issue has to be solved. There's no way that Israel can uh, absorb 5 million people, and there's no reason that it should at the end of the day. And so when we try to address some of the core issues of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, Jerusalem is obviously one of them, and that's been addressed in recent months. This is another. And so we get a sense that perhaps the Trump administration is trying to desensitize Uh, or tackle some of these core issues as Trump thinks about uh, trying to conclude what he calls the ultimate deal.
0: Right, and every administration going back decades has had a peace process. Every time that peace process has failed, if this administration is gonna have a new and improved peace process, the ultimate deal. I think these issues have to be tackled at the beginning, not left for the end when the diplomats are ready to leave and putting on their hats and shaking hands We have to learn from the past if we're going to get better. Thank you for this interesting discussion. I hope we'll come back. Where can people find more about your work on these and other issues? What else have have we done at FDD or elsewhere if they want to understand uh, more about what's going on?
1: Rich and I wrote a piece for Politico uh, on this issue just uh, I guess a few weeks ago. Uh, Rich, you've also written a few other pieces in recent weeks, yeah?
2: Uh, Yeah, I had a piece in the New York Post uh, right around Christmas time last year, and. You can uh, check us out. We, uh, we tweet a lot on it uh, at rich underscore Goldberg.
0: And I've looked at your work and I had congressional testimony not long ago and I drew heavily on it for one of the, one of the sections, which was on, uh, on, on rather, other sections as well. Um, we'll have you back to talk more as developments occur. Thanks so much. Thank you thanks. Thank you for listening in with us for this week's episode of Farm Policy. To read more about UNRWA, or FDD's larger work on Israeli-Palestinian relations, visit our website at defenddemocracy.org. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts, your praise, and your criticism, too. We hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening foreign policy.